Hi everyone, welcome to SAMA, a program which invites experts to discuss a topic from their area of expertise. This week we are delighted to have Lisa Tamahi to teach us how to become fit and think like a winner. Lisa is a professional ultra-endurance athlete with 25 years experience running the toughest endurance events in the world. With over 140 ultra-marathons to her name, that's 140, <laughs> as well as national titles, a number of podium places in international races, and many expeditions under her belt, Lisa is constantly pushing the limits of human endurance. She has written two international best-selling running books and is a sought-after motivational speaker, running coach, and mindset expert. She has run thousands of kilometres through the Sahara Desert, including the Libyan Desert, Arabian Desert, Niger, Jordan, Moroccan Desert, Chinese Gobi Desert. <laughs> Are there any deserts that she hasn't run? She's also run the Australian Outback. In recent years, she has participated in expeditions and races in the Indian and Nepalese Himalayas. Lisa has overcome her own life hurdles. Like many of us, Lisa has struggled with low self-esteem, body image issues, weight problems, lack of confidence, depression and anxiety. However, she learned how to achieve the unattainable and live life to the fullest. And she is here today to teach us how we too can achieve the impossible. Welcome to our show, Lisa. It's fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much, John, for that wonderful uh, introduction. It's always embarrassing listening to you. <laughs> it sounds like a lot, but really it just means I'm quite old and I've been around the block a few times, so to speak. Well, you can add humble to your list of um, attributes, I guess. Well, yeah, I think when you're, uh, you've had uh, the stuffing kicked out of you a few times in life, um, you can't be anything but grateful and humble if you're still kicking at the other side, you know. Right, um, right. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to sharing some of my stories with you guys today and um, some of my experiences and hopefully some learnings along the way. You know, you have overcome quite a few hurdles. The thing that really strikes, stands out for me, is your tenacity. You're, you seem to be the sort of person who just is like an energizer rabbit, just goes <laughs> and goes. And when you stop, you keep on going. <laughs> Were you always like that? Uh, I think pretty much from the get-go when I um, talked to my mum, yes, I was very much an energizer bunny. That 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 uh, analogy has been used before in relation to me. I'm also a sort of a bit of a bulldog when it comes to not letting go of things and not giving up on things that I'm really no. chasing. Um, so, like as a as a runner, um, I've I have no talent whatsoever. I never had any special abilities. Um, was an asthmatic since the age of two. Um, so I, I didn't have a very good lung capacity. I didn't, um, I was struggling with asthma right throughout my childhood in and out of hospital. So to become an endurance athlete was not really your logical professional choice. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I was also not the right build for a runner, very strong you know, athletically built, but, um, you know, too heavy to be a, a really good fast runner um, and just didn't have the VO2 max and all the other things that you meant to have to be really fast. But what I did find I had was that a, a, um, a lust for adventure 
and a desire to sort of find out who I am by pushing my own limits. And I found that I had a, a good amount of endurance that I could just hang in there, both mentally and physically. Um, and so I used my, you know, talents, if you like, to, to push the boundaries of what I was capable of. Um, and I, ne I never set out to be an ultramarathon runner. That's not, you know, what I was in school thinking, well, that's what I'm going to do. Um, but I sort of fell into the sport, if you, if you like. Um, mm. And we can talk a bit about that journey into the sport and why I got into it. But um, I'd love to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I as, as a child, I was a gymnast and I grew up so um, in a very disciplined household where my dad was a very awesome dad, but he was very um, strict and very, um, shall we say, he wanted us to perform. So there was a lot of pressure to perform and, and, and toughness was really prized in my household. So okay. I grew up, you know, having to be tough toughness if you were if you were weak if you were sick dad didn't really like that so and I always wanted to please my dad as, as little girls do um, and so I was always striving for his approval and of course this led to me like in, in my gymnastics career you know training really hard and I learned a lot of things about discipline and training and grinding through the daily stuff that you have to do in order to get where you got to go to um, and that taught me a lot of good things as a kid but then when I reached uh, puberty I grew really you know too too tall for for gymnastics and too muscular and I started to get a few curves and it, that, all those things are not good if you're a gymnast you've got to be sort of tiny and small mm. and strong and mm. um, and so uh, from a, from the age of sort of 12 going through puberty um, my coaches would tell me that I was fat and that I was useless and that I was hopeless. Oh and so this started to really affect who who I was as a young woman and oh. uh, the, the sort of, you know, lack of acceptance mm. of, of my own body, right. uh, which led to a lot of, you know, body image issues and as young girls often have. And, yeah. um, you know, that led to lots of self-esteem problems later mm. on, if you like. Yeah. Mm. Um, I quit the gymnastics, thank goodness, at about 15. Um, but I, you know, really disappointed my dad. And so I always, because he always wanted me to represent my country. That was one of his big goals for me, oh, to wear yeah. the silver fern. And so I felt like I had failed my dad. So then I got yeah. into surfing. And so I just surfed for a number of years and my brothers were also surfers and they were very, very talented and I was not. <laughs> so I failed there as well, so to speak. Oh. Um, but I, I got into um, my early 20s. I met a young Austrian gentleman who I ended up in a relationship with and we ended up traveling the world. Um, he was an extremely talented athlete, um, very extreme person. Uh, we, we cycled you know, through 25 countries and climbed mountains and trekked and kayaked and canoed and did all those adventurous things. And in this, the years with him, I sort of, you know, I had left New Zealand, which, you know, had was I'd grown up never being overseas. So this yeah. was a big, you know, new adventurous world for me. And yeah. um, I learned a lot about who I am and what I was capable of on that journey. But unfortunately, the relationship, I'd obviously chosen someone a little bit like my dad that I was never going to please sort of thing, you know, that was always disappointed in my performance and was always criticizing me and putting me down. So all of those self-esteem issues were still there and um, it ended up being a, a very abusive relationship in the end, um, just to call it what it was. But it, it 
slowly eroded who I was over time, mm. you know, and in my early 20s. But we were, I was, at the same time, I was exploring the limits of my physical abilities, you know, mm. and being pushed really, really hard. It was like boot camp on steroids for five years. <laughs> and, and so I, you know, I learned to push hard. And this all culminated when we did a, um, a crossing of the Libyan desert, which was an expedition that we did uh, with two other guys. And this was an illegal crossing. We weren't allowed to be there. It was on the border area between Libya and Egypt. So a very dangerous area to be in, but it was one of the most beautiful deserts. And the leader of the expedition, he was a guy by the name of Elvis, and that was his real name. And Elvis was a Yugoslavian, or back then a Yugoslavian um, survival expert. And he'd been in this desert years pr prior and he wanted to go across the whole entire area, which was about 250 kilometers that we were going to cover. Um, and so we were invited to come on this expedition, my, my partner and I. And this was the first time that we'd ever been, because I'd lived a very isolated life with him, where we'd just been the two of us for five years. And so I had no outside influence, really. And everything I did and was controlled. And so this was the first time that I was exposed to other people again for a long, long time. And in this time, so we had to cover 250 kilometers. It was really extreme. Like there was no outside support. We had to carry our entire backpacks on our, uh, you know, our entire supplies for our water and our food and our equipment on our backs. So we could only take a, a maximum of 20 liters each. That was all that we could carry. So our backpacks were already over 35 kilos, you know, mm. um, and we physically, you know, couldn't carry a heck of a lot more. The guys had a couple more kilos than I did. So we had 20 liters of water and we had 250 kilometers to get through roughly. And we were trying to do it in 10 days maximum. So we were hoping to get through in a, in a bit quicker, in seven days, but we, we had to ration for two. Now, this meant massive dehydration. Yeah. So 40 degree temperatures and two liters of water a day, not a good combination. No. And, and trying to walk for 45 kilometers a day, roughly, yeah. is what we were, our targets were. Yeah. Um, so we disappeared into the sand dunes one night, deep in this oasis, past a military camp, like something you would see out of a movie. And off we went. Now, we were meant to be doing a book for this uh, expedition. So we wanted to photograph. And my partner was a photographer and he was wanting to take photographs. And the leader of the expedition, Elvis, said, if you want to take photographs and do a book, that's fine, but you have to keep up. We're not stopping so that you can do photos because we have to cover this distance in this period of time. And so the partner wanted me to help him with the photos, setting them up, helping carry tripods and, you know, do all that sort of stuff, oh getting out. And I was physically unable to do that and keep up with the guys. So mm -hmm. It was just beyond my physical yeah. capabilities. I mean, I weighed at like 59 kilos or something at the time. Mm. Um in 35 kilos, I, I couldn't even stand up without their help, you know. Right, it was pretty right. on the limits of what yeah. my body could actually carry. Yeah, yeah. And and so this big, uh, um, big argument erupted between us, um, if you like, and, and the partner got very abusive. And the yeah. other guys saw this and they were like, this is not okay. You can't treat her like that. 
you know, so they ended up with this big fight between these two alpha males, if you like. And uh, this became very chilly, even though it was a hot desert, it was a very chilly temperature in the group for the first few days. And to add to our woes, we were extremely dehydrated. So we were suffering. We were physically suffering from the dehydration. You're not thinking you're short-tempered. You're, you know, you're... Uh, it's a very unpleasant thing to not have enough water. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, tempers are short anyway. And so this culminated on day four with him saying to me, the relationship's over, I'm leaving, you stay with the other guys, I'm off. So he left me in the Libyan desert after a five-year-long relationship and disappeared over the sand dunes. And that was a moment for me, a turning point in my life, where I realized I fell to pieces for a bit, and then I thought, I can't afford to cry. I can't afford the energy loss here. I, ha- I owe it to the other two guys not to cause any more troubles, and we, we have to get on. And I learned to compartmentalize the, the situation and my falling apart emotions because, you know, my relationship of five years was crumbling. Mm. The country I was living in, everything that I, you know, was starting to fall apart. Yeah. And the boyfriend had disappeared. I didn't know whether he would survive or not because one twisted ankle out there and you're dead, mm. you know. Um, and I had to get through still half of this desert. Um, and I realized I just had to put all my emotions to one side and do what I needed to do in the moment. And so that's what I did. And I we managed to, uh, you know, carry on. And on day five, Gunter, one of the other guys, he had major problems and collapses and, and, and issues. And then on, on the next night, we had a massive sandstorm and I was really suffering. And I'd been squirreling away some of my water. I hadn't even been having the whole two liters mm. because I was so scared of using up my water supply yeah. that I'd been keeping a half a liter yeah. extra a day. And yeah. so I was getting to the point of no return as far as my um, body was concerned. So on day five after the sandstorm hit and we had to hide in our sleeping bags and, and hunker down, mm. And I didn't get my water out that night and, and drink it because we were just the sandstorm was mm. so violent, we just had yeah. to get in our things. Mm. Anyway, long story short, um, I came out of that. Um, the next day we carried on and I had one collapse after the other. So my body was yeah. starting to die and yeah. I was like, you know, my, my nervous system was starting to shut down and I could, I wasn't, um, I was hallucinating mm. and things were in a bad shape. But Albus was really pushing for us to continue on. So we continued on to this point where we, so that we knew where we were because there was mm. a mark on the map where the Barbiki depression, and we knew that if we could get there, we would survive okay. because we'd be out within two days from there. And so he was just pushing really hard. So we didn't even stop to get more water. They just kept picking me up, putting me on my feet, and I just, I was so out of it that I didn't know what to ask you. Your brain's not working very well. We eventually got to this depression and we sat down and he got me down this cliff and I was hallucinating and really on close to being, you know, beyond, beyond, (laughs) beyond the pale, so to speak. Um, and he said, sat down and he said, you've got to start drinking now. I want you to start slowly drinking over the next few hours. I don't care what, you know, your arguments are. It's better in your tummy than in your backpack. And people die mm. in the desert next to a full backpack of water because they go too far. So I started to drinking and coming right. And then the next day we managed to walk another 50-odd kilometres and we managed to get to the 
the next oasis, which was on a road and connected, and we had to come in under this military base, so we had to sneak in at night time. And I remember popping my last lolly that I had in my pocket in my mouth while I was looking up at the the guards in the guard tower with their machine guns and stuff, and thinking I should be terrified right now, but I don't, didn't feel anything. I was so out of it um, and we managed to get past and we got into the civilian part of the oasis and the first thing we did was we found this shack with coca-cola <laughs> yes. and uh, down to seven bottles of coca-cola and that was my first desert experience um, <laughs> but it was a, a very dramatic one and it took me a couple of years to recover physically like my kidneys were damaged all the nerves in my upper body I had no feeling in my upper body I had a scoliosis of the spine from carrying the backpacks mentally I was in a really bad place with the with the partner and trying to dissolve that relationship which took me another actual couple of years to do um and it, but it was a point in my life where I went and nobody's going to treat me like this ever again and I'm not going to be put in a situation like that again and I started to stand up for myself if you like and slowly but surely over time started to rebuild and this is where running comes into it because a, a couple of uh, years later I was reading in this magazine um, about this race called the Marathon de Sables, which is a super famous ultra marathon in Morocco. And it's 240 kilometers, and it's touted back then as the toughest race on earth. And I was reading it and thinking, hang on a minute, I did that in the Libyan desert, same distance, but I had 35 kilos, and here we only have to carry about 9 or 10 kilos on our back. Mm -hmm. We get 9 litres of water. I had 2 litres of water. We had, you've got doctors and journalists and yeah, planes and yeah. you know all the support and logistics that you could possibly need and I'm thinking I reckon I could do this you know I hadn't actually run a marathon at that point or anything I wasn't a runner per se but I'd done a lot of this trekking and so on so I signed up for this and I did that event I went down to Morocco and I had the time of my life it was just an amazing experience surrounded for the first time in my life by positive people that were very encouraging and we're lifting my spirits up and re helping rebuild and re rebuilt some of my confidence that I'd lost. And they were telling me how good I was doing. And they were, you know, we were all fighting through this difficult race, but there was this camaraderie and support yeah. that I'd never yeah. experienced. And that of course made me addicted. So yeah. I did really well on that race. So, okay. you know, almost um, didn't, I came in the top 10 of the woman, which was a pretty, pretty big deal. And then I started to do one after the other, after the other, because I was then addicted to that, that feeling, of course, of, um, and so 25 years later, I've done, yeah, 140 ultra marathons and I'm now retired. I'm now retired, um, but I've had many adventures along the way and I've succeeded and I've failed miserably on some, um, and I've learned lots and lots of lessons that I'd love to share with you a little bit today. <laughs> Long well, story. I'm Sorry. surprised <laughs> that you, you went on another run. I, um, I have done a marathon through a desert in northern China. Oh, wow. We had, we had poles to help us because your feet sink mm. down. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. not like running on footpath. No. It's just, <laughs> Well, you know exactly what it's I like. I know, there. and the heat and, the, and yep. the thirst and everything. But we were, we were, we were cotton wool, you know, we, we were looked after. Yeah, <laughs> but was, so, you know only, what it takes. It was only 50 kilometres. So this is like a one-day thing for you. It was, it was, I, I, I but one that's five, still 50. Yeah, well, that's I felt a long way. At the end, you know, for, you know, yeah. yeah. So I, I can it. appreciate 
the pain you, you talk about you really and, thirst and 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 way beyond what you'd normally push yourself just to get yeah. to a place where it's where you feel yeah. more comfortable just like the finish <laughs> yeah like when you're actually and, and people often ask me why the hell would you do such strenuous difficult because it's not pleasant at all times is it you know it's like uh, well, let's it's be not honest pleasant most times really <laughs> most of the time yeah. it, there's a lot of pain there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of times where you're doubting yourself and can you do it and a lot of fear. Um, the thing is what you learn when you push outside of your comfort zone, and you would have learned this too, John, with your experience, was that you changed afterwards. <laughs> like you, you, you're a different person. You have different strengths. You have more confidence. You, it's lifted your horizon as to what you're capable of because right. you did it. And you yeah. achieved it, yeah. and and therein lies the value, and yeah. also in the value in the whole discipline of training for such a thing and preparing for such a massive project. So you get used to taking on enormous projects that are scaring the heck out of you, and that is another really good thing for business, for life, for the dramas. That so it it really taught me resilience. You know, like running is not about what we're talking about today. That's just some interesting stories along the way. What we're really talking about here is the mindset that you develop when you take on big challenges, when you push outside your comfort zone, when you do things that are against the odds and you, you come out the other side um, or you learn a lot along the way, therein lies the value of such experiences, in my opinion. Right. And that attitude can be extended to many things, including health. Now, you've had um, life, you have life experience. You, yeah. You, I'd <laughs> like many of our listeners out there. About your your mother and the the the, um, the journey that you yeah. both had to yeah. overcome. We'd love to share that story. So, um, yeah, I've had a, a number of dramas in life, um, health issues myself and uh, with family members. Uh, one in particular that I wanted to share with you, and I've actually written a book about the story. Um, and it's my mum had a massive aneurysm five years ago, which is a bleed in the brain. Um, and we had that phone call that you all dread, you know, mum's collapse, get to the hospital now yeah, one morning. Yeah, yeah. We get up there and we had a medical uh, blunder, if you like, happen from the get-go. The ambulance driver told uh, the doctor that she, he thought she was having a stroke or, or a neurological event of some sort, and he decided to ignore that, the doctor, and said, ah, oh, she's having a migraine, we'll give her some painkillers and Good keep patient. an eye on her. And um, so he, I'm in the ED, in the emergency department, and for six hours we're watching our mother go through hell with this, like, apparently it's the worst pain you can possibly ever have in your head because what's happening is the blood's going right throughout the brain and it's squeezing the mm. brain tissue, but we have been told it's a migraine. And so I'm not knowing what to do, knowing that this is there's something wrong here, this right. is not a migraine because she's had yeah. migraines years prior and this was different mm. so i ended up getting a paramedic friend who's who crewed for me in death valley and who knew the system and knew the doctors up there and to come up and she took one look at mum and knew that she was having either a stroke or an aneurysm or something yeah. that was yeah. going on yeah. so she went to the doctor and told him what for uh, in no uncertain terms to get her a ct scan now and so he he eventually relented and after six hours we got the CT scan back and it was, you know, blood right throughout her brain and she was dying. You know, she was 
my friend looked at me and, you know, I was like, I, she's not going to pull through this probably, you know, like this is dire. Mm. And from then we live in a little regional air hospital. So they had to get an air ambulance to transport her to Wellington hospital where the mm. neurological unit and team are. Mm. And um, so it was 18 hours before she was actually seen to. And, you know, before they could operate and get a stent into her head to start taking the blood off her brain. And a couple of days later, they did a coiling operation where they, they actually stopped the actual bleed and the actual uh, aneurysm. Incredible surgeons, and they did an amazing job. Yeah. But because of this, this experience in the ED, I realized that I had to take as much control as I possibly could and not to leave it up to everybody else because right. doctors uh, and nurses and medical professionals are wonderful human beings, mm. but they're not always right and they don't have all the knowledge and then they, they are also massively under the pump right. and they can make mistakes just mm. like the rest of us can, you That's know. Right. So I was like, right, I have to be vigilant. I have to study. I have to be up on all this. So I started studying everything I possibly could about what was happening to her and trying to stay one step ahead. Now, in that critical care phase, I couldn't do a heck of a lot because, you know, but I could, I, I did catch uh, mistakes that were made, even in that critical care phase, and were able to go to the doctors, hey, you've missed this, and oh, why are you doing this, and what's this medication? Mm -hmm. And I was, I was that horrible, you know, family member that, that was always on their case and always, but you have to be, you have to be not, it's not a time to be nice, meek and polite. Not when you're fighting for somebody's life, you have to be quite assertive and you have to be heard. And sometimes you get pushed under the rug and you get, you know, ah, what do you know? You're not a medical professional. Right. You wouldn't know anything. Yeah. Don't ever accept that. That is not acceptable, in my, my opinion. Um, and so I caught a few things. Now, they, they managed to get her through this 21-day phase of which is where vasospasms happen, where you have um, cr uh, blood and brain matter mixing causes cramps, for the want of a better, or spasms, yeah. vasospasms. Mm -hmm. And parts of the brain are dying over this period of time. So it's not all done once you've got the blood off. It's still happening for the next three weeks. We don't know why three weeks, but that's what that's what's in the, the textbooks. Okay. Um, so in this time, she's in and out of a coma. She's losing more and more of her brain. And they managed to save her life. But by the time she comes out of this phase and stabilizes and they take the stent out of her head, um, she's not much over a vegetative state, a little bit. She's got nice. um, no no ability to control any bodily functions. She'd been paralyzed on the right side from an extra stroke that she'd also had. Um, she was starting to get a bit of feeling back in the right side, but it was still very damaged. Right. She had no uh, couple of words, but no ability to speak like a um, normal person, no memory, no idea of who she was or what she was or that I was her daughter or anything like that. Mm. And in this state, she was transferred back to New, New Plymouth and we had two months in the hospital. And in this time, I'm desperately looking for answers and mm. I'm starting to see in her something that I'd seen in myself when I was racing at altitude and had altitude sickness. So I was seeing 
bacterial overgrowth and different mm. different signs that she was not getting enough oxygen. So then I yeah. tried to get them to put her on oxygen and they wouldn't. And then I said, well, I want a sleep apnea assessment. Sleep apnea is when you stop breathing at night. And mm. they said to me, you don't need a sleep apnea assessment. She hasn't got sleep apnea. Mm. And I went and got an outside consultant, brought them into the hospital. You can imagine how popular I was. Um, and we did the sleep assessment at night secretly. And... Um, it came back severe sleep apnea and that she was stopping breathing hundreds of times a night and oh. that her SpO2 stats were down at around 70% at their worst point, which is deadly. She would not have lived for very long if I hadn't picked that up. So that was my very first win, if you like. So then we got her on a CPAP machine and we started to have little bits of improvement. Mm -hmm. And then the hospital said, well, she's stable now. There's nothing we can do. She's not ever, she's 74 years old. She's got massive brain damage you know, pretty much your life's done, put her in an institution and make her comfortable. Mm. And as an athlete and as a coach and as a person, I don't do comfortable. I do goals. I do challenges. I do, you know, while you're alive, you've got a chance and we keep fighting. That's my attitude. So I said to them, well, I'm going to take her home. You're not putting her in an institution. And they said, well, you're never going to cope. She's 24-7 around-the-clock care for two people. Um, and she was quite overweight at this time. So she was very heavy to move and so on. Um, and I was like, no, I'm, I'm, that's, I'm taking her and you better get used to it. So we had these arguments backwards and forwards and I had to fight for resources. Um, I eventually won and I managed to get her home and ha have a caregiver in the morning for one hour and one in the evening for an hour and mm. some support with changing the house, et cetera. And, and then I started to work with her. Now, in this time, I had come across something called hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I don't know if you've heard of that, John. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sitting behind me is actually a hyperbaric chamber. Um, mm. So this was my first foray into biohacking and the world of all these medicines and therapies and things that aren't in the mainstream. And I heard that this was good for brain injury. So I studied under a Dr. Harch in America, who was an expert on hyperbaric and brain injury. And they use it in New Zealand hospitals even, but they don't use it for brain injury. They use it for gangrene and diabetic wounds. It speeds healing, um, burn victims, cum dioxide poisoning victims, but they don't use it for brain injury. And so I couldn't get access to it in the hospital system. So then I approached a commercial dive company of all places who had one of these chambers because they need them for dive accidents, right? It's a hyperbaric chamber, what they use when people get the bends, um, mm. divers. So I, I asked them if I could possibly use it if I signed a medical waiver and took full legal responsibility for her. And they, these amazing people said, yes, we'll let you do that. So I signed a legal waiver. We, um, the day I got my mum out of the hospital, and she's so fragile, like just, you know, so sick, take her down to this factory. We had to stick her on a forklift and put her inside this big, what looks like an LPG, you know, um, yeah. cylinder. Yeah. stick her in there and everyone thought I was completely nuts but I knew the research and this was the only thing that it was on offer nothing else was offered um and so I took the chance if you like we had 33 treatments there and then my mum started to come 
all I can say is she started to wake up. She started to respond and I could see a, f- a flicker of intelligence. She didn't suddenly get up and start walking and talking or anything, but she started to have little signs of improvement. She started trying to speak a couple of words and move her arms. And, th- and then I lost access to the chamber because it had to be taken on a contract. So then I mortgaged the house and I bought a hyperbaric chamber actually from China and I imported it and installed it into my house, all very difficult things to do. And I started putting her through the next series of sessions. And over the, la- the next couple of years, I've put her through two and a half, oh, 250 odd hyperbaric sessions. And as she started to come back, I worked with her, with her, like her diet. I studied functional ne- neurology. I had her on a keto-based diet. I had her, um, uh, I, I st- I've now done studies in genetics and I did a genetic programming. So I had the right food combinations, et cetera, for her. I studied everything known to man that I could possibly find, including PEMF. It's one of the things that I looked into and couldn't get access to her for here. Oh. So that was one that was I was had on my radar but never, never actually got to. But ozone and um, uh, hyperbaric and um, infrared light therapy, you name it, I did it. And to cut a very long story short, my mum is now completely healed. She is completely normal again at the age of 79. It took me about two and a half years before I would say she was functional again. Um, she has a full driver's license. She has a full power of attorney over her life. She has a wonderful lifestyle now where she flits around with her friends and does coffee and drives around town and sees her grandchildren and, you know, just has a, has a wonderful, wonderful life again. And, and, and I was never offered any of these therapies, not a single one of them, in the, the conventional practice. And, and it's not because conventional medicine is bad, but there are, there are blinkers mm. and there are so many things outside of the box that we need to be looking at. Yeah. And they're also very like six months behind, I mean, six months, they're 20 years behind in actual, the clinical setting in the hospitals to where we are as far as knowledge and the latest science goes. Yeah. And that's fine if you, if you want to wait 20 years until the research is in, but I, I, you know, until it, until this big machinery and the politics and the drugs and all the rest of it comes online and adapts to this new new learnings that are coming on stream all the time, it's just a slow one. One scientist, because I have a I have a podcast called Pushing the Limits that I'd love people to come and check out, and I. Um, had a scientist on and we were talking about intravenous vitamin C in relation to um, sepsis and critical care. Right. And I have a story around that as well. Um, and he, I said, the science is there. Like you've done the clinical studies. He said, yeah, we've absolutely proven it. Yeah. And I said, well, why are the intensivists not listening? Why is this not being adopted in the ICUs? And he said, because it's like turning a super tanker ICU and critical medicine especially is like turning a super tanker and it's the same with with cancer. We've done things this way for so long to change any things and to change the laws and to change the protocols just Mm. as an enormous undertaking and there aren't that many brave souls willing to push and, you know, really go outside what their peers are doing. There are some and there's some amazing doctors who are Mm. and, um, in the case of intravenous vitamin C, they're doing some incredible stuff. And so there's this 20-year sort of delay 
between what is what the scientists are studying now and what they're actually doing in the hospital, if that makes sense. So that's my story with my mum. And this is the book. I've, I've just written uh, this book, and it's called Relentless, How a Mother and Daughter Defied the Odds. And that's my beautiful mum there. And my mum is now 79 years old, and she is healthier than before. She's actually fitter. She's lost 35 kilos and um, is better off than she was prior to the aneurysm. And that's not bad for someone who wasn't much over a vegetative state. You've done very, very well. Uh, you've got a lot to be proud of. I'm, I'm proud of her. And the, the, key, the key factor was she had me as a driving force and I pushed her really hard and I am a coach by by profession so i treat her like an athlete i train her like an athlete we we train every day day in day out and i would have months with no progress and this is where i see lots of people falling down they expect instant results all the time they're not willing to go through the grind and biology is a very slow to change thing when you're repairing something, when you're dealing with something, you have to keep going and give the therapies long enough to actually show the results. And you have to keep going even when you don't think this is working. You know, you just have to, as long as it's not, you know, detrimental to your health. Right. If it's something that's positive, if it's not going to, like this was my reasoning, if it's not going to hurt and it might help, I'm doing it. And that approach was became a multi-pronged philosophy if you like this, it was an overarching philosophy and it was a multi-pronged approach to her therapies that has actually seen her now be fully healthy. And, you know, and, and that's why I wrote the book because I, it's not about the fact that this was an aneurysm and someone might be facing some other disease or some other problem. It's about the mindset that it takes to overcome the odds and to not give up when times are really, really tough and to keep searching and looking um, outside of the, 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 the box, so to speak, because there are answers and there are experts out there. So if you're sick, how important in your mind is it to learn as much as you can about your <laughs> Like you have to, or you have to have someone in your family or somebody that takes the controls or the reins and doesn't just give up your power to anyone to any one particular doctor, to any one particular thing, you have to, I mean, and I'm, I'm lucky, I'm a research fanatic, I love science, I love studying, so I spend four or five hours every day deep in the weeds and study, and it's now become my profession and my job, and I do epigenetics and health programs, and I help people with very difficult um, health issues and health optimization, but... If, if you can do that, if you can take control, start listening, start searching, the internet is the greatest resource we have ever had. We can get on podcasts like this or on, on Facebook Lives like this. We right. can listen to experts on YouTube. We can go to PubMed. We can access the latest in clinical trials. We can, we can make our own minds up. And you have to. We've been all taught to just go to the doctor, give all your power up, and they will give you the magic white pull, and you'll go home and you'll get better. And that is not what's happening. That is not a good way to approach your health and your life. Um, and you've got to remember that doctors are hugely under the pump. Most of them, if you go to your GP, you you know your general practitioner, you get 10, 15 minutes. How on earth are they actually going to work out what's wrong with you in that? Yeah. And then they've got the next person to deal with. Like yeah. It's just unrealistic to expect them to do that. 
Right. So we have to take control ourselves. And if you have a particular illness, particular cancer, a particular whatever, go and do a deep dive on that. And you can become an expert in that within a month. You can become a real expert on your disease. And then you can talk the talk with the doctors and you will know who the experts are in this field. And you will find the people who have um, other things for you to try. And yes, there are charlatans out there. And yes, there's a lot of rubbish and you have to learn to sift the, the, the you know, chafe from the wheat, as they say, or the other way around. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but, but you can you yes. can, yes. and you need to, if right. you want to optimize your your chances of success. Right. Now you you actually provide some solutions for people. You've got an online shop, I believe. Yes. Yeah, so I have a number of actual programs. So I have an epigenetics program. So this is it's not something I've developed. I'm trained in it. That's um, been developed by hundreds of scientists. And this is looking at your genes and how they are expressing, and how you can optimize your potential because no matter what disease you're facing, if you know what your genes are all about, then you can at least give your body the right nutrients, the right times of the day to be doing different things and optimize your lifestyle to give you the best chances of success with your disease, if that makes sense, and to go right to the basics. So that's one program that we offer that is really uh, game, been a game changer for, for me and for, for mum, especially, we, we got into it because of mum, but we now use it with athletes, we use it with people with, with health concerns, um, and just the general public who want to know, what are the right foods for me? What is the right diet for me? What times of the day should I be eating? How often should I be eating? All these are questions that are related to your genetics. There is no one size fits all. It depends on your genes. Mm. So when you know those factors, then you can make those optimal choices. So that's one program. Um, and then we also have an online run training academy because obviously I'm a runner. Um, so if anyone wants to know about that, they can check it out. But um, the other thing that I've recently got into is importing um, and I'm collaborating with Dr. Alina Siranova who's a molecular biologist in the in the UK and she has developed NMN a, a supplement nicotinamide mononucleotide very big word NMN and NMN is a longevity and anti-aging supplement um, it's an NAD precursor so NAD is a molecule that Every cell in our body needs to survive. In fact, it's so important that we would die within 30 seconds if we didn't have any NAD in our body. Uh, it's as, as important as ATP, which is our energy. Um, and this came to my attention when I read a book called Lifespan by Dr. David Sinclair, who's a Harvard Medical um, School researcher. Uh, in longevity and anti-aging, and he's been doing this for over three decades, and his book was absolutely mind-blowing. It really read a bit like science fiction, to be honest, the stuff that they're working on. And what he is taking is NMN and another product called resveratrol that he actually helped discover, and those two in combination are very powerful. Um, and so, yes, I'm, I'm into that because I'm all about, yeah, slowing the aging clock as far as much as I can <laughs> and reversing it where possible. Um, and the studies and the research, I mean, honestly, go and get that book and read that book because I'd butcher it if I try and explain it. But um, basically it upregulates the sirtuin genes, which are longevity genes, um, helps with DNA repair and helps the body, uh, helps the um 
the sirtuin enzymes do their jobs better. And these job, their job is to do DNA repair and to also help with cell replication amongst uh, uh, four or 500 other processes in the body. So an, uh, by having more NAD, NAD is the, the fuel source for these genes, if that makes sense. So that's why I'm I'm importing this product. I'm very very excited about it, and I'm just starting to research into a product called Spermidine. Terrible name, um, <laughs> but very very interesting science. So uh, I'm not yet uh, importing that, but I'm working on it. Um, and the research behind Spermidine is also very exciting. And I have Dr. Yurth, who's an expert in this, coming on my podcast actually tomorrow. So yeah, some exciting. Exciting things like people need to be up on this because we're all facing aging. We're all wanting to slow it down and, and, and above all have health span. You know, we may not want to live forever, but I want to live healthily until the day I die. It's a very, know? very good point. That's, that's right. <laughs> you want to be racing to the end. Yes. Um, not um, going down in this horrible, it, you know, is one of the products that I take myself. Uh, do you do? Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. How um, long have you been on it, John? Uh, about, probably about the same time as you, about six months. Yeah. Wow. Um, I, um, just going through a few links. If people, uh, I'll give you 30 seconds just to grab a pen and paper because we'll, I'd also like to um, get, uh, give you uh, Lisa's websites where you can get this valuable information. So that's 30 oh, seconds. And, um, I've been taking it for about six months. I haven't really found much difference, but I feel good. I do other things as well, but um, yep. This for another. And this is the thing, John. You got to chuck the mud at the wall, and some of it will stick. And with any <laughs> minute, it's like <laughs> it's like again, it's a multi-pronged approach, you know. Um, and you're not going to take the pill. It's not an what some people I think think when they think, oh, it's an anti-aging thing, that they're going to take the pill and they're going to wake up the next day young. That doesn't quite work like that. Um, but on a cellular level, it's just like if I cut my hair off, I know that my hair is growing. I don't see it from day to day, but eventually it's going to grow back. You know what I mean? Well, and it's I, I don't know what you mean because I have it Well, <laughs> that was probably an unfair analogy there, John. But um, but um. You, you know what I'm so, trying to say is that on, on a cellular level, on a biological cellular level, things right. are happening. You don't. It's not like you drinking a Red Bull and feeling energized. That's not going to be the effect it has. But mm. it's working on all those pathways of aging, and they, over time, as those cells go on and become healthier, then you are going to be healthier and younger and you're going to have all of these um, downstream effects from it if you give it a chance. Like I had a person by the NMN the other day and I had to laugh. She said, I've been taking it for three days and I don't feel any different. And I'm like, right. really? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a red bull. It's not well, you should, you should have told her she drink. looks two days younger. <laughs> <laughs> Like, did you age overnight? No. It took a long time for you to start to see the, the effects of aging. Right. But it was happening on a cellular level way yeah. before you were even aware of it. Absolutely. And that's exactly what's going on here. So people just sometimes crack me up. And 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 that was, this, that's, that's, you know, because I've worked with a lot of stroke patients and people like mum coming back with brain injuries and mm. concussions and so on. And again, they all want the magic instant success and right. it's hard work yeah. 
Yeah. They go, well, but how did you get your mum back? And I'm going, well, it was this, 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 and this, and that over five years. Yeah. Are you prepared to do that? That is the question. Yeah. yeah. And your outcome may be different than my outcome. Are you prepared to walk in blind faith mm. that yeah. things will be better if I do this? Because your alternative is not a good one. So for me, it's like, well, that's a no-brainer. If I've got a chance at life, if I've got a chance at improving the quality of my life, then I'm taking it, sure. you know. And I've, you know, like I've spent an absolute fortune rehabilitating my mum, mm. but I would give away my house, my car, my everything mm. to have my parents healthy, you know. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, I lost my dad six months ago, um, yeah. which was another tragic uh, yeah. event and this was one that I could not control because it was outside he, he was in the critical care system he had developed sepsis after an operation he'd had a aortic aneurysm that had blown out one night and they'd had to do a massive operation to save his life they really didn't think he would survive that but he did yeah. but then he developed sepsis and I wanted intravenous vitamin C because yes. I know the power of yes. that I've read the, I, I have friends in those circles I have a lot of friends in these circles and I could not beat the system. It took me 15 days of fighting legal battle, battles, ethics committees, and he was dying. There was no option that they had for me. And yet they would not let me do intravenous vitamin C. And yet they wanted me to take him off life support. And it was just this time that the system, you know, failed my dad and yeah. failed me. Yeah. Um, I eventually got him vitamin C, but it was five, five, uh, 15 days into it and he had multiple organ failure. Yeah. And despite that, just as a, a point of interest, the very first intravenous we got him into, uh, his white blood cell count improved, his kidney function went from 27 to 33%. His um, C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker, it really tells you how bad you are, mm. went from 246 down to 115 which is amazing, but you need, in this case, you need it every six hours, and they stopped me doing it the second session. They stopped me doing the third. I had to fight every time, and it delayed it and delayed it and delayed it, and then two days later, he, they forced me to take him off life support, and I lost that battle. And so one of my crusades now in life is to make sure that his death is not in vain, and that I give a voice to the doctors and the scientists who have been saying this for over 30 years, that vitamin C is a very powerful um, molecule when it is given intravenously. It is not the same as oral, not to say that oral is not good as well, but when it is given a massive dosis of oral uh, for sepsis, for COVID, for ARDS, for pneumonia, for um, cancer, um, there, you know, you need to look into the research. And unfortunately, like I said, this whole ship analogy, yeah. in this case, I lost that battle with my, with yeah. my dad because it was out of my control. Yeah, and believe sad. me, I tried. Yeah, I can believe that you would have tried. Yeah. When the uh, coronavirus first started in Wuhan, the first thing the government did in China was to... Um, send train loads of vitamin C. So governments know. Oh, absolutely. Wow. There's photos of um, huge, huge containers absolutely full of ascorbic acid. You're kidding. Because we uh, lost all access to our supply in New Zealand a year ago, which is when Wuhan 
and that's um, we've managed to get another supply, and I'm on it. I've got my mum on it. Um, but but China has been very progressive in doing that with it, with intravenous vitamin C. Oh, they would and other countries it. aren't. Yeah, I can't understand. No, um, there's money involved. That's why. Well, <laughs> this, I, well, we'll touch on that just quickly. I don't want to sort of put too much focus. No, on. I don't want to go into a conspiracy theories. No, 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 no. But know that um, there are systems. Um, they've got a certain size toolkit. And the, and, and the drugs that they prescribe are the ones that they've been told to as part of the group to. of drugs that they're allowed to subscribe because then exactly. they get the, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the drugs are cheaper. They've, they've worked out deals with the companies, and that's all good. But the problem, of course, is that those drugs don't necessarily cover all bases and also they don't. The drugs may not be the most appropriate for the DNA of that person. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> Personalized yeah. health, it's called, John. Yeah. Um, and and you, you're right. Like the, the the issue that they had in the hospital, with, in my case with my dad, was that it was not a licensed medicine, and therefore legally they were not allowed to, yes, even though it's a right. licensed medicine in New Zealand. Yeah. And he had had it with his GP prior. Um, and I, that was the loophole that I actually eventually found was to let um, I could get my GP to come in and administer it, but the hospital staff weren't allowed to, if that makes sense. So I found a way around the loophole. But um, And I was very lucky that I had a GP willing to do yeah. that, able to yeah. do that uh, functional medicine doctor here who had actually given him intravenous vitamin C prior. So the, the so we, we eventually found a way to do it legally. And so this was all about legals. A legal battle, and so my dad died, in my opinion, because of a legal battle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the yeah. end of the day, you yeah. know, it wasn't whether this is right or wrong, or whether no. this is going to help him or not. Yeah. This was about legally, we've got to cover ourselves, and therefore, you know, he died. Right. He yeah. paid the ultimate price, and, yeah. and and it's just so ironic because I'm an activist in this space. You know, the the. And and they they knew who I was. They knew that I've written books about it. They know that I have a big following. They know who I am. So I got listened to. Anyone else wouldn't have been even listened to. Yeah, it's very sad. Very sad because um, yeah. there are people that do the research, find out something which is really good to take, and they can't get it. Yeah. And yeah. then scientists are banging their heads on the wall. I've yeah. had five scientists and doctors on my podcast all talking about uh, vitamin C. Yeah. And they're all like, we're shouting this from the rooftops and nobody is listening. This is the science, the science, the yeah. science. This is yeah. not rubbish. And then you yeah. go and there's this misconception, well, vitamin C, well, I'll just have an orange. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. And someone who's intub you know, in intubated can't even – I couldn't give him oral anyway, yeah. but you would need yeah. massive doses. Like oh, we're talking couldn't. like 500 oranges at once in, in, a, in a, you know, one uh, intravenous yeah. vitamin C. So we, we, it's not doable orally. No. And you couldn't go through the digestive tract. It has to go in intravenously in this sort of right. situation at least. But anyway, getting off topic. Yeah. <laughs> It gets, gets absorbed into the blood quite easily if taken orally, and you've got these tablets. How can people buy them from you? What, yeah, what? Um, I'd love them to check it out. So I have a website. So I've got two websites, actually. My main website is lisatamati.com. 
Tamati is spelt T-A-M-A-T-I, and that houses all my programs, my books, my shop as well. But I have a dedicated NMN site, which is nmnbio.nz. So nmnbio.nz. But if you go to either one of those sites, you'll find your way there if you're interested in buying that. Um, would love people to get on it because uh, read the book. You know, read the book, do the research, okay, learn now, the science, and you'll be wanting it. <laughs> everyone has, everyone's got the pins down and thinking, well, it's been well over 30 seconds. Well, the book that Lisa is talking about is called Lifespan, um, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To. It's a book written by David Sinclair. Dr. David, um, yep. he goes He's through amazing. Science. I've read the book. He's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a very easy to read book, but... Uh, you can skip over the difficult parts and just get to the nitty gritty. And in yeah, particular, it's an amazing book. It, if you want to um, do what, uh, if you want to find out who does it, go to the end of the book and it tells you, he, he gives what he takes every day. And exactly. one of those things is <laughs> NMN. Now, there was a, there's multiple studies on the internet. Normally, with things that are health there you get um, some experts saying, oh, but these studies show this and this and this. But NMN is, is it, it's natural, easily absorbed. There's never, I believe, been one case where there's been an adverse reaction. I just wanted to quote something which I dug up, just a random one, but it really shows just how wonderful NMN is. Um, the, it was from an NCBI um, paper that was written by a group of scientists who did a year's study on NMN, and they found that, uh, well, this is their summary. Our findings from this long-term administration study provide a proof of concept to develop NMN as an effective anti-aging compound that prevents age-associated physiological decline. So we're not just talking about living longer, but we're also talking about living better. More importantly, yeah. Um, so this is this is now scientists aren't known for making um, grand statements because they've got their scientist friends to knock them in place, and also they've got yep. their funding to look after it. This, this yeah, so they're very conservative as a You're as a population. Yeah. So, so if they're saying something, listen. <laughs> And Dr. So, Sinclair, what I find about the, the, people can actually look up podcasts on, on Dr. Sinclair as well. There's one with Dr. Rhonda Patrick. Uh, she interviewed Dr. David, and that's got a real good synopsis of the book. If you if you're struggling to read the book, um, so just look up Dr. David Sinclair podcast, and you'll probably come across that one with Dr. Patrick. Um, it, it is. Once again, I, I I applaud Dr. David because I think he's actually risk an awful lot to share his research directly with the consumer, and he does not recommend anything because he he has to walk a very tight line. But he says, "I'm not recommending anything. I'm just telling you what I'm doing." That's right. <laughs> and what my dad's doing, yeah. <laughs> and his father was an interesting case. So his father was. In his mid seventies, you know, declining. He'd been a brilliant scientist himself, and um, was, you know, uh, slowing down cognitively, physically, and going mm. through all the normal sort of aging mm. crap that we go through. And then D David got him onto uh, NMN, 
and resveratrol with a combination. And um, he, and it's all outlined in the book. He's now in his, I think he's in his mid eighties or early eighties. And he's like traveling the world, climbing mountains, <laughs> just living. He's started a new career. Like he said, he's like even better than he was earlier. And yeah. he's been on it now for a number of years. So, and as David says, is, is it that? I don't, I can't <laughs> say it is, but we was he nothing else that he was doing. He pays it. Yeah. So I, I, I'm like, well, I'm into, the, I'm into that because the alternative is you are definitely going to age. I can tell you that much. <laughs> no. So that's an inevitable otherwise. Mm. And there's more things now. coming. Sorry, sorry, uh, John. What was that? Oh, he's 53 now. So if people wanted to look at, you know, do a Google search and see what he looks like at 53, I think yeah, you'd be amazing. surprised as how young he looks. He looks probably about 30, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, he, he's yeah, yeah. Young guy. No, he's a, he's incredible. I'm I'm waiting for it to kick in. I'm 52, so I'm like desperate for it to to kick in now and start going backwards. <laughs> I've noticed massive weight loss, like um, which wasn't an intended thing. Um, weight loss without muscle loss has been a, a big yeah. strong uh, effect for me. Yeah. Um, more energy, more mental focus. Um, my mum has also had a massive uh, weight loss. She's lost 11 kilos in the last four months, which for her body type was a really difficult thing to do. Mm. Uh, less fuzzy, more energy, like she's going all day, uh, where she used to sort of collapse at about 3 p.m., you know, and mm. tire. Mm. Now she's, I've got to kick her off to bed at 10, uh, 10 p.m. Um, she's just go, go, go all day. Um, so, you know, <laughs> again... My brother, he's a he's a weightlifter and he and surfer and he he's lifting heavier than he's ever lifted, and he's fifty, um, and he's surfing up to six hours a day. He's now started competing in surf competitions and stuff and taking out you know podium places and nationals and things like that. So I don't know. I mean, you know, it's a combination of of being fit and right. but also doing all these things on the side. Yeah. It all helps. Yeah. It all helps. It does. So um, that's the Edamin product, which I do recommend people uh, purchase. Yeah, we can send that right around the world. So it doesn't matter where you're listening from. If you you can, um, if you are from outside of New Zealand or Australia, then just email me and I can order it for you and get it directly shipped to you. And what's rather your than it. So uh, Lisa at lisatamati.com. So L I S A at lisatamati.com. Tamati, T A M A T I. Great. Yep. Love okay. to help people with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd love you to help people with that. <laughs> exactly. Well, there's quite some stories you've said. You've, you've, um, you're, you're a strong person. I'm, I'm just a wild, wildly guessing here. <laughs> you're a strong person. Um, <laughs> And you've bloody been, minded, some say. Well, yeah, <laughs> in a good way, because you've you've improved the quality of life of a lot of people. You've taught people that you can achieve the unachievable, <laughs> the unattainable, not to accept no, basically, I guess. No, and never give up. As long as you're breathing, there's a chance. You yeah. know, I, I, I. You know, like, yes, we're all going to die. And yes, at some point, you know, that's going to be it. But up until that point, you know, I'm going to 
go down fighting, you know, <laughs> and have as long a healthy life for for my loved ones is is very important. Um, you know, especially after going through this loss of my my precious dad. I, you know, I don't want anybody to go through that, and that no. that that drives me every single day. And the fact that my mum would have been written off. And I, I see her having a wonderful life. That drives yeah. me every single day for what Driving I do. Driving around and that's the place and visiting friends. And I'm passionate, you know, I'm passionate about it, you know. Yeah. That's quite a story. Uh, you know, I, I, I know there'd be a lot of people that are inspired from your stories, inspired by you. Oh, thank you so much, John, and thank you, you know, for all the work you do and the the, the products and the, which I'm definitely keen to try and find out more and maybe we can talk afterwards about that because I'm keen to try the PMF or the, the, the pure resonance, the spooky. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to find out all the details. I'm surprised you didn't know about them. I mean, not I know about PMF, up, but, about, but not, not, not the pure yeah. resonance one. That's new oh, on me. Yeah. There's always something new to learn, isn't there? There always is. And, um, and, uh, you know, our viewers that are watching, you know, I really encourage them to continue learning. If they're looking Absolutely. for some specific health solutions, uh, listen to people like Lisa here and others who can point you in the right direction. And, uh, yeah, keep keep up the study because yeah. you can only win. You can Exactly. Win. I know one of the things I've found is that podcasts have been amazing for me. Like I have my own podcast, Pushing the Limits, which, you know, I have lots of these amazing scientists and doctors on there, so check that right. one out. Yeah. But but other podcasts where I, you know, have – where I can get to listen to some of the most amazing minds on the planet on whatever topic I'm choosing, you know, um, uh, and that's such a privilege. It's like having a university in your pocket with the best professors in your pocket any time of the day. <laughs> it's like who who had that? Nobody in history had that chance. You know, people say to me, "Oh, I'm bored," or "I've got to," you know, watching some rubbish on telly. And I'm like, "But there's so many interesting things in the world to yeah, look at and to yeah. study and to learn." I would never be bored. Like you know, there's just too much, too much knowledge that I haven't yet got in my head. You know. <laughs> I do sometimes think I put one thing in and another thing falls out, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to make space for the new things. <laughs> yeah, I do have, yeah. I do get frustrated with my limited uh, intellectual capacity, but um, it is what it is. <laughs> we are who we are. <laughs> yeah, we do our best. We, yep, we do. Yep, we can only do our best. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show and um, teaching us how to be winners. Um, <laughs> Thanks, John. Your stories are very touching, and um, you know, I can, I can, I can empathise with you, and I can, I can draw from your experiences, and I really understand how now you are who you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we, you know, we can we can let things that happen to us break us, or yes. we can try to find, even though it's the horrible or or whatever, we can try to find the learning in it, and then make it let us make it stronger. Right. You know, um, right. and try to be more resilient from that experience. You know, and not to break under it. Um, and that's easier said than done, but. You know, if we have that approach, okay, well, I've been through this horrific experience. Uh, and this is why, like, you know, writing the book, for example, is an example of that. Okay, I've been through this horrible thing. Now, how can I make that into something positive for someone else? Right. Okay, I'll write a book. 
<laughs> about it, which took me two and a half years, by the way. It's a bloody big job writing a book. <laughs> but um, you know what I mean? So you turn that negative into a positive, and now yes. mum is a role model for so many people. Yes. You know, we're constantly getting messages from people around the world who've read the book who go, oh, my God. That that's helped me. That's really empowered me. That's yes. that's changed my perspective. And at the end of the day, then that you know that experience that she had to go through is helping other people. And by the same token, my dad's death will affect other lives in a positive way. You know, we will get change, and we will add my voice to the the discussions that are going on around the world. And you know, people people will benefit from that experience, even though I wish I'd never had to go through it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I wish I had my dad back, but mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. you can't, you know. You That's can't. one thing I can't fix, I've discovered. <laughs> there is no yeah. fix for that one. Yeah. And that's why prevention, prevention, prevention okay. is where it's at. Thank you once again. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thanks so much, John. Yeah, it's bye-bye. awesome to be here. <laughs> <laughs>